I'm going to start off giving a little bit of an academic approach. Then I'm going to talk more in a, um, an application process. And then I, I'm going to end up with what I believe is a, more of a prophetic message for us here today. And um, something I'm feeling a little stronger than I normally do of, that, that I want you to hear, that I feel like is significant for us to take in and to, to really, it's a part of the season that we're in that's important. So, the book of Acts has 28 chapters. Some of those chapters are long. We are not going to do an expositional study on this book in five weeks. What we're going to do is divide up in the outline that Jesus gave, telling them that they were going to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So, Jerusalem is Acts 1 through the end of Acts chapter 7. They're in Jerusalem. And it's interesting, Acts, you know what Acts 1.8 says, you're going to be my witnesses. And in Acts 8.1, they're sent out. They are pro- projected out. They are, uh, through persecution, they're forced out of Jerusalem into God's purposes. And then that is Acts 8 through 12. And then the ends of the earth starts with a story of a church called Antioch in Acts chapter 13. It goes through the end of the book. So we're going to have five messages related to that, those different parts. I mean, two out of Jerusalem, one out of Judea and Samaria, and two out of the ends of the earth. And in context of the whole Bible, Luke-Acts was written by Luke, who is considered to be uh, a physician. Paul referred to him, uh, or in, in one of the epistles, talked about the beloved doctor. He was a companion of the apostle Paul for a season. We know from Acts chapter 16 on, what's happening is a lot of we conversation. That So, Luke is telling a story of being a part of a team. And um, Luke and Acts are a, a composite narrative. And this is a is not an epistle. It's not a letter, although we do see that Paul, excuse me, Luke is writing to a man named Theophilus, but it's a historical nat- narrative. It's not poetry. And all of the epistles, all of Paul's epistles find their context in this book. We go through. This is what happened in Philippi. This is what happened in Thessaloniki. This is what happened in Rome. And so we, we understand context and history as we read through the book of Acts. And chapter 1 in context is a, an amazingly important window of time. The, uh, it is, it's an, uh, what is that phrase? Uh, you're talking about a, a period of time that's significant, like you're in a pause. It's a seminal moment, a kairos moment. There's something here. Of, of all of history, built up to the life of Jesus, and then his death, burial, and resurrection, and then he says, wait. And they're waiting. And then Acts 2, boom, off to the races. All of these things start happening quickly. But there's a window of time in Acts chapter 1 that is a pause. And key points in this chapter, I'm going to just read, I don't know that we have any, uh, anything projected today. You're going to have to use 
either paper or an electronic device if you want to follow around with me and make sure that I'm not making this stuff up, okay? You need to open up something and say, is that written in my Bible? What is that guy talking about? So Acts chapter 1. Luke says, in my former book, he's talking about the gospel of Luke, Theophilus, I wrote all about, uh, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So we have Passover and Pentecost. It's 50 days. 40 of those days, Jesus was walking on earth, showing him his hands and his side, giving them convincing proofs that he was alive. And then he ascended, and then there's 10 days where they're waiting. And um, in both of these books, Luke is talking to a guy named Theophilus. So who, who is this? Well, we don't really know anything else about him, and, and there's some conjecture in this. But uh, some people believe he was an important Gentile official. Could have been uh, his missionary financial supporter, someone that he was giving an account to. This is, this is the story. This is what happened. And it's a, it's a historic record, much of it firsthand, or at least he is telling, if not firsthand account, he's talking about people that had a firsthand account. So this is a really good historic document. Theophilus, some believe that maybe he was once Luke's master, like Luke was a, sla a slave to this man. And uh, so, and that because Theophilus was saved, that he gave Paul, uh, Luke, to Paul, to serve Paul because he had had different sicknesses. Some people believe that Theophilus is, wasn't even a real person, that Theophilus means lover of God, and so that he's writing, lover of God, I want to give you a report on all that, that has transpired. Either one of these ways draws us into an important document. So what do we have in here? We've got this introduction in, the, in chapter 1. We have uh, Jesus' last words and ascension, and then we have a, a place where they're gathering for a period of time, for this 10 days, and during that time, we have a report of the replacement of Judas. A, a, there had to be 12 apostles. One of them has, is now dead, and they are replacing him. So this is, we have a report of all this, and it's very interesting. I'm not going to go down into each one of these points, but I'm going to emphasize right now the words of Jesus, what, was, what were the last things that he said. He said in the fourth verse, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. And it's also interesting, the very end of the book of Luke, there's this overlap. He says the same thing there. Wait, 
There's power for you. There's a, a gift that my Father has promised for you. And uh, then I'm going on. There's a question that a disciples asked him, and he, he counters that question. And in the eighth verse, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then he ascends. They, they watch him go up into the clouds, a relatively dramatic exit. You know, these guys have been through some pretty profound experiences with this person, Jesus, that has proved to them that He is God. He's, he is Creator God. So, He told them to wait, and that's what they did. They were uh, within a Sabbath day's walk. I don't know what that means. I've been in Jerusalem. I've been on the, the Mount of Olives. It's a very small place. It's kind of interesting when you're in the middle of that kind of history and you can scratch and go back 2,000 years. It's, it's very impressive, overwhelming. And you're on the Mount of Olives and, and there's, you know, there's like a carnival going on. Mount of olive, olive trees, right over here. Get your next, you know, bring one of these home. And uh, so it's like, whoa, this is overwhelmingly repulsive. And, uh, and the other side of it, you're looking at history. You're looking down on old Jerusalem and these walls and trying to put this picture together. So they, it really happened. They lived in this place. They walked and talked and and, and walk through this whole, whole, whole thing. Now, I'm going to move now away from the, the formal overview that I've just given you. And I want to make a couple of points to you that I think, as I read the book of Acts, are, are significant. I, some of what I started off with. The book of Acts is your family history. This is your story. I was talking with Mr. Book here, and uh, he's Becky's dad, and he's from around Monroe, which is where I was born, Monroe, Louisiana. You know, I know y'all been wondering how to pronounce that. It's not Monroe, it's Monroe. But I was there last week at, at my uncle's funeral, and uh, I had... A good, I had a phenomenal, my, I was, I drove, I flew to Nashville, intense week for me. Flew to Nashville on Sunday night, got a short night, got in the car on Monday morning, drove nine hours. We had 24 hours with extended family. At this season of my life, some people that I haven't seen in 20, 30 years, cousins that I grew up with, all these different things. And, uh, and I'm getting an intense injection of, oh my gosh. How much has happened in my life over the course of 57 years? I lived 13 years in Louisiana. I was born in Monroe, and uh, so I've, I, I haven't quite known how to put this message together, but I, I went to Duck Commander headquarters while I was in Monroe and made a couple of pictures of myself, and I sent one. To, to Becky, and she said, 
is, is that, what, what's the guy's name you thought? She said, is that Hagrid? I said, no, that's Willie. And uh, so we, we have various things. Willie makes duck calls and uh, has a very popular television that's no longer on the air. And um, I'm just, Northeast Louisiana is not like Boston. Just wanted to tell some of you, just in case you were wondering. And it's not like Austin, Texas. I lived in Austin, Texas for 12 years. So it was, uh, I went to college uh, in, in Waco, and that was a very different experience as well. And then I, I went down to... I moved Baylor and went down to the university, as one person said, the University of Ungodly Texas. Those are people that didn't go to school there, would say that kind of thing. Meaning, it's just, it's a crazy place. On our Friday nights when we had our campus ministry events, the group in the room before us was the Campus Nudist Club. It was just not like Monroe, okay? It was different. So there's different tensions that I live with. In my life. And then I moved my family to Indonesia. And we lived there for 10 years. And, and then I, we finished that up and I moved to Boston, Massachusetts. Who am I? How do I put all of these pieces of the puzzle together? I want to tell you, at every season I say, this is who I am, Lord. I'm tying into eternity. I'm going back and looking at my history. And I'm saying, this is what is fixed and permanent. I, my life is all over the place. Every time I get on an airplane, it takes me two days for my soul to catch back up with me. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You just feel like, whoa. And uh, I like airplanes. I spent a large percentage of my life on airplanes. But I'm, I don't have the benefit. When I was in Monroe... And talking with people that I played with as a child, (laughs) people came up to me at the funeral and told me stories about high school. And I was like, I was not the nicest person in high school. I'm not quite sure what reference point they had on me. And it's like, was I a nice guy? Thank you. Praise the Lord. And, uh, (laughs) you know, but they spent their entire life there. And there's something in me that was jealous about that. Like, Wow. You know where Stark is. You know where Delhi is. You know where Rayville is. All these little towns around in this area. I, you know, I'm still trying to figure out where Mansfield is in Boston, you know, in greater Boston. Like, where, where is that area over there? I don't have the cohesive identity of having lived in one place my entire life. And the tension that's valuable about that is I don't have a geographic identity. Jesus, I am a stranger and alien in this world. You are my identity. You are my root. You are my core. And I cheer for the Red Sox. But I'm, but I, I'm trying to figure so many things out. And I'm tying into to my family history. Now, as an adult, we have to ask who we are. There's a a juncture in your life where you go, who am I separate from my parents? Who am I separate from 
all the context that formed me. I, I bought into this stuff, but now, and I, I received it. It was just, it was the air that I breathed. But who am I? And I went through that crisis along with the book of Acts. When I was a, I went to a Southern Baptist church all growing up, and then I had a powerful encounter with the Holy Spirit, and they did not teach me that in Sunday school. I went to the book of Acts. I started reading the Bible in ways and it's like, no one ever healed crippled people or talked about that when I was growing up. No one ever sold all their possessions and then lied to the Holy Spirit about it. There was never this kind of persecution. There's no one, Philip, there was never a Philip that got translated and went to another place and they didn't know how that happened. There weren't visions and this was not a part of my church. And so I was like, how do I feel about my church? How do I feel about my past? Do I, what do I trust now? And what I chose to do in those moments is I said, I trust this. I trust this family history, not what I've experienced in my church, not what I've experienced in my past. I want to go to something more solid than any culture, than any tradition. So I'm, I'm just telling you, this is your family story. I'm calling you to your family story. And when you read the book of Acts, you question your history. You don't question Acts. You let Acts shine a light on your past and ask questions about what happened and say, Lord, what is true? This is what is true. What happened? I don't know how to put all the pieces together. I want to respect my past. I want to respect everything that I received and honor that. But... I want to take these crisis points, I want to take these significant points and have God speak into my life. Becky, I want to call you up here right now. Becky has a testimony of hitting a crisis point in her life. brought a huge reset and moved her forward. In God's purposes. Thanks, Mark. Uh, so, Mark actually asked me to share about how my life was changed by almost dying four years ago in three minutes. <laughs> and so, I'll, I'll do my best. Um, so, so, the backstory is I mean, my story is one of, of illness. I had months of fatigue and unexplained declining health. It culminated in my hospitalization in the ICU at St. Elizabeth's here in Brighton for four years ago this past week. Um, among other things, my electrolytes were way messed up. I had impossibly low sodium levels to the level. Uh, they, the medical professionals had never seen levels as low as mine were. Basically, I should have been dead, you know, when your body's not out of whack. Um, but I wasn't. And miraculously, I, I got the help that I needed, um, including a diagnosis of Addison's disease, thank you, Lord, which comes along with a, a, red, a daily medication regimen that keeps me uh, largely healthy. Um, and I'm really, really, really grateful for that. But behind this neat little summary, there's a million really 
really painful memories. Because um, it's, it's really humbling to get that sick. Um, I once wasn't strong enough to walk. I wasn't strong enough to wash myself. I, you know, I could barely eat. Um, and some of it's em- embarrassing when I, when I look back. Um, when, when you're that ill, uh, you lose some control of yourself. You're a bit out of your mind. Um, and I, I wasn't even 30 when this happened. And it's really, really hard uh, to taste your mortality, especially when you're young. You just don't even want to think about it. Um, da, da, da. Um, so how has my life changed? Um, uh, God met me in those terrible, terrible depths. So now, I mean, I knew before, you know, like head knowledge. Um, but now I know uh, that my Savior is a compassionate man of sorrows, as it says in Isaiah. He's a man of suffering. He's familiar with pain. So when I was in that hard, dark place, he was not far from me. He was so near. Thank you, God. I had some idols stripped away from me, uh, health, self-sufficiency, control. Um, but on the other side, I really do believe that his ways are better and higher. And his, even God's foolishness is, is wiser um, than, than what would seem to be my wisdom. And there's a verse in 2 Corinthians I clung to. His power, his power is made perfect in my weakness. I really believe this. This is my testimony. I'm just going to, uh, all of this essentially is a, a string of Bible verses. But it's true. And I, I say these as my life, that this is my testimony. That outwardly we are wasting away. Yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Our light and momentary troubles achieve for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Church, fix your eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. What is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. Uh, Guys, I I wouldn't wish what I experienced on anyone. It was terrible. Um, But I really do believe the Bible. I do not conform to the pattern of this world. I've been transformed by the renewing of my mind. Uh, This path of pain that I had, it helped me to test and approve what God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Um, So I can stand and say that God gave me back my life. Um, and I want to live it for Jesus. I want to live it for the glory of God. Um, I, th- I think of this hymn. It goes, On Christ the solid rock I stand, Because all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. So awesome. that's my three-minute story. Thank you. So, Becky has parents that are believers. She had a great investment growing up. But there are certain crisis points that happen in life that redefine you. And you dig deep and you say, who am I? And as you hear in her story, the pain pressed her into finding Jesus as a solid rock. And so we have to come back in all this. This is a true story. Acts is the authority over my previous experience. The book of Acts is the fixed point, and our lives are the variables. So now I'm going to tell you a couple of things that I think are now words for us as a church. They're now words for me, and I feel like I just want you to hear this. And it relates to this time of waiting. 
that they were called to. What does it mean to be waiting? It's interesting, 10 days. If we put you and uh, people that were very, very close to you on a retreat center for 10 days, after you'd just seen Jesus ascend into the clouds and been through his death, burial, and resurrection, what would you be doing? What would you be talking about? I, I believe that part of what happened was a lot of repentance. They're, they're dealing with hurt, fear, rejection, confusion, isolation, everything. You know when you go through a difficult time, you know what happens to your closest relationships? It's a fire. You when one of the biggest, uh, whenever there's a, a death in a family of a child, it is very difficult on the marriage. It's a crisis. Whenever there's something that happens that's painful in, in our family, it forces us all to get to the next level. And I believe that's what was happening. They were cleaning house. They had suspended normal activities. And the Holy Spirit was convicting them deeply. So we're waiting. Had a phone call with a, a friend of mine uh, who was the leader of our movement, Jimmy Seibert, a couple of weeks ago. And he was on a sabbatical last fall. And he was waiting for about six months. And I said, you know, how would that go? He just came back into his role in, in January and he said, you know, we, we, Laura and I, his wife, said we want to think about the spirit within and the spirit upon in this season. Spirit within, cleansing, and spirit upon empowerment. We want to go back and get those two pieces in a fresh way. And he'd been in ministry without a sabbatical for about 30 years. So uh, he said, I had a, a few thousand cuts and bruises that I, had, I don't know that I'd really tended to well. And uh, so they, they did an intensive counseling uh, ministry with something called Restoring the Foundations. It's a great thing that just goes in a, in a broad way. It's nothing new, but they're dealing with generational curses, bitterness, judgment, uh, you know, uh, any lies that we received, just kind of take you through a deep process intensively over about six days. And he said, we just tried to be the best clients possible <laughs> and to receive everything there was there. And then they went for empowerment, and uh, God's given them a lot of relationships, so they uh, kind of brought into a, a valuable ministry that's in Northern California. And... Uh, the, the Holy Spirit met them with some leaders there, and they said, you know, it was a lot of shaking, a lot of tears, a lot of electricity, it was fresh power. That's what was happening, I believe, in this season. It was cleansing and empowerment. And another thing that happens... For us here in, in Antioch, in, in Boston, three churches up here, is a need for fresh power. There's a waiting period I feel like that we're in right now. 
uh, our church, Sean and Laura Richmond, about a dozen others, moved into the Boston area, and they were all 30 and younger, going crazy, doing evangelism, pulling people together, praying, and some good things happened. They started three churches in this area, sent out missionaries in uh, many different places, sent out a team to Arizona, uh, and that church is doing amazingly. They've got like 650 people attending worship on Sundays. A lot of giving happened. But at the end of that, about seven years ago, we had a bunch of tired leaders here in Boston. It's a very weary place. And when Susan and I got here almost five years ago, they, they said, help. So what we've done over the course of five years is a lot of things that you do with entrepreneurs, okay? Entrepreneurs are people that know how to make things happen, but they don't always know what to do with the management that comes after something's happened. And so that management phase was exhausting, and we didn't have systems. We didn't have policies in place. So we spent a lot of times getting all of that in place over the course of the last five years. A lot of hard conversations, a lot of restructuring, getting people, the right people on the bus, the right people in the right seats on the bus, changing roles, doing all this stuff. Now we need fresh wind from God. The right systems, the right policies do not bring the presence of God. It's very important for us. Very key time for us. But now we need the breath of God. So this waiting season, I don't know what that looks like for you, but I believe we desperately need fresh wind from heaven. We need this life and power. The second word that I want to talk about, and it relates to this chapter, is generational transition. When we were, uh, at the end of the year, uh, a lot of times uh, the leadership of our movement says, we, what is God's word for this next year? And I prayed, and I got this phrase, generational transition. And I thought, I'm not going to say that. You know, that's going to, like, make people confused. They're going to say, Mark, you just got in this job. What are you talking about? You know, what, what, you know, what is the deal? I just sat on that, and then Billy Graham died. I said, yeah, it's the end of an era. Then Jimmy came back from his sabbatical. This is an, a communication that he's given to the pastors, is that he's, he stepped out of his role in Waco, and he's more into an emeritus position now. Cargoli is becoming the lead pastor of that church. And Jimmy's going to be speaking about 25% of the time. And he's given himself to Friday night encounter nights, welcoming the presence of God. An intercession and longer extended prophetic ministry services. Anything sound familiar here? And the other thing that they're doing is he and Laura are doing a whole series of pastoral retreats. They're bringing in leaders from the movement in couples, three and four at a time, to spend three and four days together in their home. They're going deep. It's a, it's a time to get foundations in place 
in a healthy way. So, what does this look like? I, I have a, a picture. Can you get this picture up on my computer? I want to show you something that I think is entertaining. See if it works. Plug that in. I was a time of purple in my life. Ta-da. Anybody recognize that face in the middle there? The lady over here. She just spent a week dealing with the uh, after effects of a tsunami in, in Aceh in northern Sumatra. Just stepped off of a, uh, a uh, Black Hawk helicopter and is on a uh, aircraft carrier. And I just want to say, we've gone for it. I've broken things. I've taken risks. We've lived our life. We've not lived safe lives. Now it's your turn. With each one of my children... We're coming to them with honesty and vulnerability and saying, any way we've lived or said things that have wounded you, we're sorry. We want to clear everything out of the way so that you can run this race. And I believe God is raising up the next generation of leadership here in New England. That's what I've committed my life to. So I don't want to see happen is you writing new stories. And this is, this is what this book is about. This chapter is about the end of an era and the beginning of another era. And I, I want to challenge you to live a life out of revelation. That is, and this is my prayer. I've taught on this. I've encouraged it. I pray this again. I pray it daily. I pray it over other people. Lord, I ask for a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. The eyes of my heart would be enlightened to know the hope of your calling, the glorious riches of your inheritance in the saints, and surpassing greatness of your power toward us as believers. I, I don't want to just live information. I want to live transformation out of revelation. I, I want substance. I don't want religious tradition. I don't want this past thing. I want the new season of what God's doing but based out of history, based out of something that doesn't change, based out of something that I'm willing to die for. So we, I want to ask you to stand up with me right now, and I'm going to try not to hit anything.
Yeah, worship team, come on up. And I want to welcome you into a season. I want to welcome you into a seminal period of time where I really, really believe we need the breath of God on our lives. We don't need to be involved in intellectual arguments about morality. We need to be involved in intimate relationship that brings transformation. I want to change. I want to be more like Jesus. And I want want to tell you, one move of God is worth 100 hours of counseling, maybe 1,000. There is one who transforms. There There is a God who has changed my life that moved me from an angry, bitter person to someone that experiences a lot of pain and sees it as redemptive. And I, this power that I read about in the book of Acts, I've seen waves of that come on me and others. And we have stories of crippled arms moving out and becoming whole right in front of people's eyes. Not, not you sne- are you sneezing less yesterday than yesterday? Supernatural things happening because we have a supernatural God. So transformation of our souls, but a release of power that is evident that He is a living God. We're not arguing about religion. This is not a head thing, back and forth. I know more than you do, and my argument's better than yours. Let the God who can answer with fire be God. Let the living God in the city of Boston, where we have tremendous arrogance about our knowledge and and intelligence, Jesus, give us humility of children that has substance of character in it and a revelation of power. What does it mean for you to wait? What does that mean for you to wait? For me in that first season, it was over a year. It wasn't come down and get something, go home, stick it in the microwave oven. It was a year of process, of repenting, going over things again and again and saying, Jesus, cleanse my heart. Deal with my relationship with my parents at a new way. Deal with old flames old girlfriends in my life, for you, old relationships, Lord, just come by the wind of your spirit and wash that stuff away. All the damage, all the cuts, all the bruises of all that. Come, Holy Spirit, and wash me. And I came to the end of washing, washing. It's like, I'm just waiting, Lord. I'm waiting. Silence. And then never in my life before had I seen anybody healed. Boom, it started happening. Like, boom, my goose nest. What in the world is this? I want it again. It's not happening enough in my life. I'm not living the book of Acts in the way I want to. I need to wait. So I'm not saying, they didn't, Jesus didn't say, okay, you got the message, get out there and work hard. You guys aren't doing it, get out there and make it happen. He said, 
wait until you have received the gift that I promise, the Holy Spirit's power. You don't want to go in your strength and burn out within X number of days. We, we need the wind of God. We need the wind of God. And I believe what's going to happen is a release of a whole new wave of leadership, a whole new wave of reality, lived out testimony in your lives. You'll have stories to write about reality. Let's worship.